down in a death cell by myself. Oh, chained in a death cell by myself. And my gal, she gets, yeah, she got somebody else. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today, public enemy number one, John Dillinger. Part one, Rush to Infamy. The Great Depression of the 1930s brought untold hardship to millions of unemployed Americans who had lost their farms or their jobs, while at the same time it created a crime wave the likes of which hasn't been seen since. It made heroes out of robbers and killers, as well as crime fighters. It elevated J. Edgar Hoover to hero status and brought lasting fame to the FBI. It made the newspapers and radio owners wealthy beyond belief, and it created a new breed of criminals who thrived on all that media attention. We've done stories on Ma Barker and her killer brood, on Dutch Schultz, and on Bonnie and Clyde, but of all the gangsters and criminals of the 30s, and there were many, It was John Herbert Dillinger who became the face of the gangster era and a hero to a large swath of America's downtrodden. Why anyone would respect and even worship violent killers is a mystery I can never understand. But Dillinger, who, between September of 1933 and July of 1934, was responsible for the killing of ten men and the wounding of seven others, the robbing of many banks and police arsenals, and the staging of three separate jailbreaks during which guards and sheriffs were killed and wounded, was to the 30s what Jesse James was to the 1870s and 1880s. He was a hero to many. When news of Dillinger's death outside the Biograph Theater on July 22, 1934, reached the people of Chicago, men and women rushed to see the blood in the alley behind the Biograph Theater in Chicago where he had fallen and many blotted the blood onto pieces of clothing or any other memento they had handy. There's a famous picture showing Betty and Rosetta Nelson wearing bathing suits and waving to the Chicago Tribune camera as they stood in front of a crowd two feet away from Dillinger's corpse, which was lying at the Cook County Morgue at Polk and Wood Streets in Chicago, where massive crowds had lined up outside with hopes of getting in to see Dillinger's lifeless body. The woman who had betrayed Dillinger, brothel owner Anna Sage, known to history as the woman in red, had made a deal with FBI agent Melvin Purvis that if she cooperated with the FBI, all charges would be dropped against her and she would avoid being deported to her home country of Romania, which Chicago authorities had been threatening. She told Purvis she would be accompanying Dillinger to the theater that night and that she would wear a red dress. Agents were waiting in front of and behind the theater in Lincoln Park. There was a shootout. After Dillinger was killed, Babyface Nelson, one of Dillinger's gang members, had threatened to kill Anna Sage, and now she was demanding police protection. This story at times reads like fiction, thanks to extremely rich source material provided from newspaper accounts during and after Dillinger's crime spree. And now our story. John Herbert Dillinger was born on June 22, 1903, in a bungalow on 23 Cooper Street, which is now Carolina Avenue in Indianapolis, Indiana. His mother died when he was three, and his father was a deacon at Hillside Church and operated a small grocery. When his father moved to a farm in nearby Mooresville, Indiana, John became involved in farm chores. He helped his stepmother with chores and spent his spare time in the woods with his dog and his gun, exploring and enjoying growing up in a largely rural area. 
He enjoyed pulling pranks, snatching a chicken from a farmyard, or teasing the town drunk. He once roped a farmer's outhouse to a freight train which was standing on some nearby tracks. Pretty much normal pranks, with the exception of that last one. He did know how to use his fists, and although he was not tall, he was five foot seven inches. He had broad shoulders, and he was known as nobody to mess with. He started to go wrong when he quit school before finishing the eighth grade and went to work at a veneer mill to earn some money for himself. His family wasn't starving. They were middle class and doing all right. He was a good baseball player and joined the Mooresville Nine, starting at second base, soon becoming the team's leading pitcher. At the same time, he started staying out nights and hanging out at the local pool room. He also fell head over heels for a young girl named Frances Thornton, and they became secretly engaged, but her parents did not find him suitable and constantly tried to break up the relationship, which ended. Dillinger was greatly disturbed by this and would keep memories of Francis close to him until his dying day. After the breakup, he left Mooresville for Indianapolis and ended up enlisting in the U.S. Navy in 1923. He was assigned to the battleship Utah, but after five months, he'd had enough of military discipline and deserted, returning to family in Mooresville with a story of how he'd been discharged due to a weak heart. In Mooresville, he married a 16-year-old girl named Beryl Hobius, and soon after, through no fault of hers, he started heading for the dark side. He was still frequenting the pool hall, and he met an older man named Edgar Singleton, who had served time in Indiana State Prison. Singleton enjoyed the attention of younger men and filled their heads with tales of his escapades, and soon he and young Dillinger were going out on drinking sprees around the town. On the evening of September 6, 1924, a local groceryman named Frank Morgan was headed for home after work with the day's receipts of $150 in his pocket when he walked by the Christian church where Dillinger and Singleton were sharing a bottle of moonshine on the back steps. The two rushed Morgan and began beating him with an iron bolt they'd wrapped in a cloth. Morgan started calling for help, and luckily it was heard, and men nearby rushed to help. Singleton and Dillinger ran, Singleton driving away, and the young John stumbling drunkenly home. The police called Dillinger and his family in the next day, and although Morgan wasn't able to make a positive identification, the court officials said they had proof of John's involvement, and if John pleaded guilty, he would get a light sentence. John's father couldn't afford a lawyer. The deal sounded good, and John confessed. Judge John Williams handed John the maximum sentence, 10 to 20 years with assault with intent to rob, and 2 to 14 years for conspiracy to commit a felony. The ex-convict Singleton had hired a lawyer and got off easy, which left him hanging around in the same pool hall and telling his stories, while 20-year-old John went to the big house. Ten years later, Indiana Governor Paul McNutt would say that the moment of obvious injustice created public enemy number one. In his fourth year of prison, in 1928, Dillinger was told by his wife that she had filed for a divorce. She had waited four years for him, and he had tried for parole but it was turned down. The divorce came through June 20, 1929, at Martinsville, on the grounds that her husband was an incarcerated felon. It wasn't that easy to get a divorce in those days, but that reason worked. He soon asked for a transfer to Indiana State Prison at Michigan City, where he knew that two of his former friends, Harry Pierpont and Homer Van Meeker, had gone before him. That marked the first step in forming the Dillinger Gang. He joined the prison baseball team and followed the Chicago Cubs closely while trying to keep his nose clean. One thing he became known for inside was his ability to make friends and develop a reputation as a person who would do all he could to help people in need. 
Maybe that character, combined with the fact that he'd gotten a raw deal from the system, helped in creating his Robin Hood hero image later on. He kept up with his letters to home and relatives and friends, and they on the outside kept up a campaign to get him released. Even the judge who had sold him out pled for leniency for him, saying he needed to come home and work on the farm. On May 22, 1933, John Dillinger walked out of state prison, but he wasn't headed for the farm, at least not for long. On the same day that the gaunt and pallid-looking Dillinger stepped back into his father's house, his second mother died, having suffered a stroke just days before. Dillinger was broken. He tried the farm life for a while, but the bitter disappointment of losing two mothers and a wife, and knowing what all the townspeople, although they were kind, must be saying about him, that disappointment preyed on him. John said his goodbyes on July 16, 1933, and started on his way to create a blazing crime career that would end in his violent death one year later. He joined up with his first two partners in crime, Harry Copeland and Hilton Crouch, and held up the commercial bank of Daleville, Indiana. There was no sheriff in Daleville, and no security at the bank, just a little old lady who opened the vault, which yielded $3,500, a lot of money in those days, where many men worked for 50 cents a day, or didn't work at all. Their next heist was the Montpelier National Bank in Montpelier, Indiana, on August 4th, and that netted $6,700, and then later bluffed in Ohio's only bank for $6,000 more. By now, they were putting together some serious money. Their hideout was in East Chicago. These robberies brought police captain Matt Leach into the investigation, and Captain Leach would suffer greatly in the coming weeks and months, earning a reputation as always showing up late for the crime. Dillinger took every opportunity, now that he was becoming a favorite of the press, to ridicule Leach, and was probably doing so in part because Leach was trying to connect him to every crime in the Midwest. The next bank was targeted by Dillinger because he knew that a successful raid here would vault him into national fame, and that's what he was looking for. This was the Massachusetts State Bank in Indianapolis, right near the headquarters of the state police. Two customers, George Alexander and Francis Anderson, were at the bank when Dillinger entered, now dressed Natalie in hat, coat, and tie, a dressing choice which he would employ throughout the short remainder of his career, and they put their hands up. Dillinger immediately ordered them to drop their hands, so people outside wouldn't see the raised hands and get suspicious that a holdup was taking place. The robbers helped themselves to $21,000 and were soon speeding out of town. It was between the Montpelier holdup and the Massachusetts State Bank robbery that Dillinger got in touch with Mary Kinder, the sweetheart of one of his old buddies at the Michigan City prison, and with her help, he got word to his old buddies there that he would soon be helping them break out. Dillinger, with Mary's help, was able to carry out a plan that he dreamed up while he was still in prison there, but he didn't have the context then to pull it off. It was a plan whereby he would throw boxes containing guns and ammo over the fence at various checkpoints where the guards weren't watching. The plan worked, and ten inmates waged a daring escape on September 26, 1933, taking hostages as they passed one barrier after another, and then robbing the prison's gun arsenal before leaving the prison. The alarm was sounded four minutes after the prison break, after which pandemonium reigned in and out of the prison. The news of the break was broadcast on radio to all the surrounding counties, and roads were blocked. Reserve forces and vigilantes were called, and a posse of 500 men was quickly organized to conduct the pursuit. The luckless Captain Leach and his men were driving up to a gas station when they, along with the audience of a Gary, Indiana radio station, 
were shocked to hear a play-by-play account of a pitched battle between the escapees and the posse. Here we are, folks, the announcer was excitedly jabbering, right on the scene of a gigantic manhut. The troops are all lined up around here. There go more squads right through that field of death, right on the trail of the felons. Do those boys ever falter? No siree. Listen closely now, folks, and you can hear the shots as a deadly powder of lead is rained all about. Oh, boy, this is exciting. What a battle. And from the loudspeaker came more sounds of gunfire, machine guns, pistols, and shotguns, mixed with the howl of police sirens and the screams of hysterical women. Meanwhile, the families and friends of the posse were calling the authorities and the newspapers for word on the casualties. Captain Leach raced to the scene, hoping, knowing that this was his chance to get these guys at last. Indeed, there was a band of 500 vigilantes in a wooded area south of Chesterton, Indiana, where a report had come in saying that the escapees had been seen there. The radio station in Gary had rushed their crew there as well and were broadcasting live. But nothing was happening. So the announcer decided to fake it. When Captain Leach rushed onto the scene and asked, Where'd they go? Is anyone hurt? The radio announcer explained after a while that he had made it all up for the sake of entertainment. If Leach could have arrested the guy then and there, he would have. But Captain Leach would soon get a chance to exact his revenge on Dillinger. One of the ten escapees, whose name was Joseph Jenkins, had a widowed sister who lived in Dayton, Ohio, and her name was Mary Jenkins Longacre. When Dillinger was near Dayton, he made an effort to look her up, and they hit it off. He even took Mary and her friend to the World's Fair in Chicago for a day to have some fun. He must have gone in disguise because his picture was everywhere at that time. To amuse themselves, they asked a policeman at the fair to snap a picture of them for posterity, and he did. Word that Dillinger had been visiting Mrs. Longacre's residence made it around to Captain Leach, and he set a trap for Dillinger which took him by surprise, and landed Dillinger back in jail in Ohio, which bothered Captain Leach because he wanted him in Indiana to face charges there. While in jail in Ohio, Dillinger wrote this letter to his father. And I'm adding it here because it tells us what his mindset was at that time in his life. At this point, Dillinger had killed no one. Dear Dad, Hope this letter finds you well and not worrying much over me. Maybe I'll learn someday, Dad, that you can't win at this game. I know I've been a big disappointment to you, but I guess I did too much time, for where I went in as a carefree boy, I came out bitter toward everything in general. Of course, Dad, most of the blame lies with me, for my environment growing up was of the best, but if I'd gotten up more leniently when I made my first mistake, this never would have happened. I prefer to stand trial here in Lima because there isn't as much prejudice against me here, and I'm sure I'll get a square deal. Dad, don't believe all the newspapers say about me, for I'm not guilty of half the things I'm charged with, and I've never hurt anyone. Well, Dad, I guess this is all for this time. Just wanted you to know I'm well and treated fine. Signed, Johnny. return to our story right after this sponsor message. And now, back to our story. At half past six on the evening of October 12, 1933, a car drove up to the Red Brick Jail at Lima, whereupon three uniformed officers got out and walked into the front office. Harry Pierpont, that old friend of John's we mentioned before, said to Sheriff Jesse Sharber, We're officers from Indiana, and we've come to take John Dillinger back to Michigan City. 
Now, Sarber knew that Indiana had been negotiating for rights to extradite Dillinger, but he still asked for credentials. Here's our credentials, said Pierpont, and then he pulled a gun on Sarber. Sarber pulled his gun, and Pierpont shot him in the abdomen, and then corralled the remainder of the people still in front into a room, and within minutes Dillinger was in their car speeding out of town. Sheriff Sarber died the next day, and the Dillinger gang had gone from bank robbing to murder. Then began a gang crime spree, starting with robbing police stations of their firearms while the Dillinger gang built up a veritable arsenal. One bank after another fell to robberies, done not just by the Dillinger gang, but by the other gangs as well, and sometimes having been arranged by the banks themselves, many of which were failing back then in the early 30s, and didn't see a problem with staging robberies to collect on their insurance. The state of Indiana was in panic. The National Guard was called out. At one point, the governor ordered that all firing pins be removed from police guns held as backup, so that if they were robbed, the thieves would at least have useless weapons. In Chicago, on December 14, 1933, a Chicago detective named William T. Shanley was dispatched to arrest the owner of a green roadster, which they presumed was owned by a Dillinger gang member named Red Hamilton. While Shanley waited near the parked car, Hamilton and his girlfriend, Elaine Dent, approached, and Shanley asked for a registration. Dent reached in her handbag for papers, and Hamilton took advantage of the distraction and pulled his gun out of a shoulder holster and fired at Shanley, hitting him twice. Shanley's partner, Frank Hopkins, had been sent on a local mission and was close enough to hear the gunfire, which caused him to run back toward the police car, and when he saw Hamilton and Dent running away, he pursued them. The pair split up, and Hopkins went after the woman, Dent, leaving Hamilton running and the policeman's partner bleeding to death back near the squad car. She later identified Hamilton and his assumed name, which was Three-Fingered Jack. She said she'd moved in with him after losing her job at a Chicago hotel and believed he was the son of a wealthy family. He apparently liked to carry a large bankroll. He was awfully nice, she said, as she broke down crying during a police questioning. He took Sabbath twice a day and never cussed. Sergeant Shanley died within an hour of being shot, and the outcry to bring down Dillinger and his gang, once they connected Red Hamilton to Dillinger, spread throughout five states. They say that every gang, good or bad, needs a good girl leader. The Lost Boys had Wendy. Robin Hood's gang had Maid Marian. The Barkers had Ma. And the Dillinger gang had Billy Frechette. Her real name was Evelyn Frechette, and if that name sounds French-Canadian, it was. Her father was a Frenchman, and her mother was a Menominee Indian. Billy was born on the Reyes in Wisconsin in 1907, and at the age of 13 got shipped off to an Indian school at Flandreau, South Dakota. She moved to Milwaukee at age 17, and then Chicago, working in both cities as a nursemaid and a waitress. She married a man in Chicago named Walter Sparks, but he left her soon after to pursue a few months of crime, which launched him in the state pen. She met John Dillinger when she was 26. She was a good-looking young lady, with dark hair, large brown eyes, a smooth complexion, and the obligatory high cheekbones, sort of like Cher. She was polite in all her speech and manners, and was never suspected of hanging with a bad crowd. When the gang was living in Chicago, they were constantly moving from one apartment to another, and most of the gang members were couples, with some exceptions. There was Russell Clark and his girl Opal, Harry Pierpont and Mary Kinder, and lone wolves like Homer Van Meter. Who would be there with Dillinger on his last bloody bank job? Van Meter had known Dillinger when they were both jailmates in Michigan City Prison and was paroled shortly before Dillinger. He had stayed in touch with the gang members on the outside. With a few well-placed bribes, you could stay in touch with anyone on the outside back in those days. 
During his stay in jail, Dillinger had contracted ringworm, and now that he was out, he needed the services of a doctor. So he contacted Arthur McGinnis, another former jailmate now living in Chicago, and asked him for the name of a good doctor. Dillinger didn't know that McGinnis was a snitch for police detective Leach, who watched Dillinger make his first visit to the eye doctor, Dr. Charles H. I., if you can believe it, E-Y-E, on Irving Park Boulevard in Chicago. Dillinger's second appointment came on November 15th, and this time the state and Chicago police were waiting. Dillinger arrived in a small sports car driven by Billy and went up to the second floor for his visit while Billy waited outside. She saw the trap unfolding, but she couldn't do anything about it, except keep the car running. Meanwhile, the doctor, while talking to Dillinger, happened to look out the window and casually mentioned that something must be happening outside. There were a number of police cars gathering. Well, that's all it took for Dillinger. The next moment he was running downstairs, a gun in each hand, and as he broke through the door into the street, he fired each gun before jumping into the sports car and grabbing his submachine gun. Billy slammed the car in reverse into a side street, hitting the front grill of a police car and disabling it. The car had been hidden just around the corner. Then she powered out, heading east. They could both hear the smacks of bullets hitting the sports car as they started to gain traction. Dillinger broke out the back window and started returning fire with his Thompson machine gun. The sports car was soon outpacing all but one of the police cars. That one, a hot one, kept pace with the sports car at 80 miles per hour until the chase reached Elston Avenue, at which point the smaller sports car made a sharp turn that the police car couldn't handle. When Jenkins got turned around, the sports car was nowhere to be found. Dillinger and Billy arrived at a gang party at Russell Clark's temporary abode. They were all temporary, with couples and gang members switching at regular intervals. Dillinger and Billy were breathless while sharing their story. The next day, the abandoned sports car was found by the police, who counted 52 bullet holes in it. Fast times in Chicago in 1933. And the police didn't have to account for their bullets. On November 20th, four of Dillinger's gang robbed the Racine, Wisconsin American Bank and Trust Company of $28,000, a fortune in those days. One of the tellers hit an alarm, and people and police started crowding around the bank. Two of the policemen charged in and were immediately shot. The robbers took hostages and got in their escape vehicles, ordering the hostages, a policeman, the bank president, and a female employee, to stand on the running boards to prevent the police from shooting. They were never caught. The loot was divided amongst the entire gang back in Chicago, and then the gang scattered again. Wisconsin joined Indiana and Illinois with demands for somebody to do something. The state governors of five states posted a $15,000 dead-or-alive notice for Dillinger, not caring how he was eliminated or where he was brought in. But not sunny Florida, where Dillinger and his girlfriend Billy, a close gang member named Harry Pierpont and his girlfriend Mary Kinder, Russell Clark and his girlfriend Opal Long, and Charles Makeley had gone to spend her leisurely Christmas in Daytona Beach. They booked a 17-room house there and bought nice clothes. They locked all their guns in a closet so that the maids wouldn't find them and get suspicious, and they spent time treating themselves to life's finest on stolen money. Partway through their idyllic vacation, Dillinger got a little jealous of Billy, who, to remind you, was Evelyn Frechette, and warned her to put some distance between herself and gang member Harry Pierpont. She stood up to him and said he was way off base with that. He dropped the subject, but didn't fail to send her back to Wisconsin to spend some time with her mother on the Indian Reservation in Wisconsin. He also told her she could rejoin him in St. Louis at an agreed-upon time and place. While the core gang was relaxing in Florida, 
the police in Illinois were putting together names and faces of gangs and gang members that were associated with Dillinger, and the list was growing large. Large enough to make them believe that they were going after the largest group of hoodlums that the world had ever known. Captain John Steege, a veteran Chicago policeman, was placed in charge of a special Dillinger squad that consisted of 40 hand-picked men who were known to shoot first and ask questions later. Ah, those were different times. He divided them into ten groups, and they started going after the lowlifes. They distributed pictures, wanted posters, and the license numbers of 22 automobiles thought to be owned or used by the Dillinger gang members, and they started finding and bringing people in, not just in Illinois, but in all the neighboring states. Steeze responded to a tip that Dillinger and several of his gang had rented an apartment at 1428 Farewell Avenue, and they planned a raid for that night. They covered all the entrances to the building, and Sergeant Frank Reynolds led the raiding party. They snuck quietly up the stairs and knocked, and when the door opened a crack, they rushed in. Three men in the living room went for their guns, and Reynolds, who was the closest, fired at and hit all three, killing the first two. The third was lying on the floor, wounded, and pointing his gun at Reynolds, when Sergeant John Daly kicked it from his hand and shot him through the head. At first they thought they'd gotten Dillinger, Pierpont, and Hamilton, but when the smoke cleared, they found that it had been a trio of small-time hoodlums. They had robbed a bank in theater, but had stepped on the toes of a rival gang in so doing, at which point the other gang had raided them and stolen their loot. This gang of three had been caught but escaped, and were sitting ducks for the police raid. On December 28th, Illinois issued a list of 21 public enemies, and John Dillinger topped the list, followed by Pierpont, Red Hamilton, and Makeley. In January of 1933, Dillinger, Pierpont, and Hamilton wasted no time kicking off the new year with bank robberies. Charles Makeley, Russell Clark, and Opal Long were setting up temporary headquarters in Tucson, Arizona, and they were joined by the gang's newest member, Lester Gillis, known to most of us as Babyface Nelson, known to all of them as Jimmy. His wife's name was Helen, and she was also a mother of two. How she managed to raise kids while constantly on the dodge with the Dillinger gang, is anyone's guess. Makeley, Clark, and Opal Long had rented rooms at the Congress Hotel in Tucson, and soon after they did so, a fire broke out in the hotel. The firemen were able to rescue all their belongings, which included suitcases and trunks. The firemen didn't know it, but those suitcases and trunks were chock full of stolen money, guns, and ammo, and Makeley, Russell Clark, and Opal Clark were so thankful for the firemen saving their belongings that they rewarded them with $50 bills. Seems like a nice thing to do. The firemen thought so too. But this was 1934. Not too many people were handing out $50 tips. And back at the fire station, a lot of those guys spent hours looking through detective and crime magazines, which were loaded with pictures and stories of America's most wanted. They found a few pictures they recognized and they shared their thoughts with the police and the Tucson police started to get busy. And during this time, John Dillinger, Harry Pierpont, Mary Kinder, and Billy decided to join the gang in Tucson as well, and they arrived from St. Louis just three days before the Tucson police sprang their trap. They nailed Russell Clark and Opal, not without a good fight, and then picked up Makeley. Then they grabbed Harry Pierpont and Mary Kinder as they were entering a tourist camp. Tourist camp was an early term for the roadside cottage-style motels you used to see off the highways. Usually they had a restaurant or diner attached. The Tucson police surprised Dillinger and Billy later the same day as they were about to enter a house they had just rented. 
Dillinger was carrying a miniature Thompson submachine gun, but he never got a chance to use it. He was completely surprised and surrounded. The Tucson police had had a field day. A reward of $8,000 was on Dillinger's head and $1,000 for each of the others. Dillinger had $9,000 on him. The total found on the other members combined was $30,000. Dillinger, Makeley, Clark, and Pierpont were placed in solitary confinement with 15 guards to make sure they didn't go anywhere. After a long battle between states to determine which one would get Dillinger, he was finally escorted on a plane to Chicago while en route to the winning state, Indiana. A huge conflagration of police and press was waiting in Chicago for Dillinger, and there was a scramble at the Crown Point jail later to get pictures standing next to Dillinger. All the cops wanted to be known as the guy who got him, including the prosecutor Estel, who was caught smiling in a picture standing next to Dillinger, who again was smiling with his arm on Estel's shoulder. That pretty much killed Estel's reputation as a tough prosecutor, seeing as how Dillinger seemed to enjoy his company. Dillinger made it clear that he wanted an L.A. attorney named Louis Piquette to defend him. Piquette was a showboat and just as much a criminal as was Dillinger, the only difference being that Piquette had a law license and used his talents to keep criminals out of prison. Dillinger was Piquette's ticket to instant wealth, stardom, maybe a book deal, maybe a movie deal, and to do this he needed to make sure Dillinger was free to rob a few more banks. He went to work with an idea that would help Dillinger out of his jam. No, it wasn't a brilliant legal defense. That would have taken time and lots of honest effort. Instead, he acquired a fake pistol and figured out a way to get it into Dillinger. During his time in jail in Indiana, Dillinger worked on establishing his mild-mannered persona with the national media and even the police, and most of the press was lapping it up. Less things were mentioned about the crimes Dillinger and his gang members had committed, including the killing of Officer O'Malley in that Indiana bank robbery and more human interest was being cast out upon the eager public. He was also getting regular visits from his defense attorney, Louis Paquette. On March 3, 1934, using that fake gun, Dillinger bluffed his way out of what had been considered as a prison of no escape, and three days later, he was robbing banks again. He had stolen a car and taken it from Indiana to Chicago, finally, in so doing, committing a federal crime, transporting a stolen vehicle across state lines, and now J. Edgar Hoover the diminutive head of the FBI, could use his resources to go after Dillinger. The biggest frustration for Hoover all these past months had been the fact that Dillinger hadn't broken any federal laws. Dillinger's escape soon became the story for every newspaper in the country. The general public considered it a huge joke, while law enforcement saw it as a super embarrassment. Vaudeville and radio comedians were building joke lines around it. And remember that newspaper shot, Prosecutor Estel and Dillinger chumming it up at the jail? One newspaper cartoonist showed them hugging and titled it The Law's Embrace in Indiana. Another paper showed the prison warden's wife, Sheriff Holly, she was also a sheriff, sitting disconsolately on the front steps of the jail above the caption, The Girl He Left Behind Him. It was Sheriff Holly who, at the moment of the escape, donned her own gun and ran out to her car to go after Dillinger herself, only to find that her car had been used by Billy and Dillinger, only to, only to find that her car was gone, it had been used by Billy and Dillinger to escape. Now the greatest manhunt in the history of crime was taking place in the five-state area, and it looks as though the FBI believed that Dillinger wouldn't have enough nerve to even try to get close to his family, but that's exactly what he did. He and Billy both slipped past security in the back of some friends' cars, and they were able to spend a few days with his dad and his family. He spent a peaceful weekend relaxing, taking pictures with everybody, and catching up. 
but things were about to get very busy in the spring and summer of 1934. 1934 was the year that saw the bloody demise of many of the known gangsters of the Depression era. Bonnie and Clyde left this earth on May 23, 1934, in a hail of gunfire as they were ambushed on a Louisiana back road. Pretty Boy Floyd was killed by FBI field agent Melvin Purvis in a cornfield in Ohio. Then there was psychopath and stone-cold killer Babyface Nelson, who was shot nine times before leveling his guns and killing two FBI agents. Then there would be John Dillinger and many members of his gang, including Red Hamilton, Homer Van Meter, Charles Makeley, Harry Pierpont, Tommy Carroll, and Eddie Green, as well as others. In that year, Chicago mobster Al Capone was transferred from Atlanta to the newly built Alcatraz, while Ma Barker just missed the 1934 deadline and was killed in Florida in January of 1935 by a barrage of bullets at her Florida hideaway. We covered the story of the Barker Carpus gang last year. Of all of the gangs, Dillinger's gang was the largest and most deadly, and the constant target of the FBI. Be sure to join us next week for the exciting conclusion of John Dillinger, Public Enemy No. 1, as we bring you the story of the FBI's manhunt for Dillinger in the aftermath of the Crown Point escape, and the robberies in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, Mason City, Iowa, and a host of other Midwest cities, along with a whole slew of FBI shootouts and captures which finally led to Dillinger's demise. A special thanks to our Patreon supporters at patreon.com forward slash 1001storiesnetwork. Thank you for your support. Those monthly contributions you're making us help us out in a lot of ways. And December is a ratings month, so please keep those reviews coming, folks, especially at Apple Podcasts. Here are a few recent ones to inspire you. The first one, five stars, makes the day less mundane. I work waste disposal, and when I'm in the frigid weather and getting soaked, your podcast takes my mind to a place in history where I can't feel the muscles ache in the cold. Thank you. That from Hobzilla 400, Apple Podcast. U.S. Educational and interesting. Five stars. This podcast has a lot of facts, mysteries, and ideas that are little known, and I would recommend this to a lot of young people who I think should hear this over the secular version of it. That one from George Lovecraft, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, Loving Crafted Content. Five stars. Love the podcast, and John is a very compelling podcaster. Down from Trek Fanix, 01, Apple Podcast, Great Britain. And this one, always interesting, five stars. Lots of interesting topics with in-depth research and well-formed opinions. Down from Pragsy, Apple Podcast Canada. And this one, great show, five stars. Well-researched episodes and presented in a straightforward and factual way. Excellent podcast. Down from Super Duper Fred, Apple Podcast Canada. And this one, five stars, great podcast. Well-researched, informative, and very pleasant to hear. Down from Marcelo, TL, Apple Podcast Brazil. And this one, a real treasure, five stars. John, thank you so much for curating such a wonderful group of stories and presenting them so expertly. It's a real joy to discover writers and stories that I would have otherwise overlooked. That one from Dan P., Laguna Beach, California. And this one, worth your time, five stars. My wife suggested listening to podcasts at work to help get through the days. Stumbling upon John Hagedorn and his 1001 series of podcasts has been a great surprise. Well-researched and well-spoken. John and his podcast are an excellent way to whittle away some time. Down from Rollin33, Apple Podcast, Canada. A lot of reviews from Canada lately. Thank you very much. It's great to have you guys as listeners. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, saying thanks for joining us, and we'll be back next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time with Part 2 of Dillinger, Public Enemy Number 1. Until that time, everybody, keep listening, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.
real-time inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.